Welcome to Punditocracy, Lawrence.com's politics and culture podcast. I'm Gavin, and this week's filthy and furious episode is in conjunction with Liberty Hall's free screening of the documentary American Hardcore on Saturday, February 24th. We speak with Stephen Blush, author of American Hardcore, A Tribal History, and director Paul Rackman, who adapted the book for film, about the 80s underground music scene. We then speak with Lawrence Music promoter Jeff Fortier to get some local flavor on Heartland Hardcore and Lawrence's own contribution to the punk movement. Stephen Blush, author of American Hardcore, A Tribal History, and Paul Rackman, director of the film version of this book. Thank you very much for taking some time out of your day and joining us here at Lawrence.com. This is Stephen, and this is Paul. Yeah, we're psyched to be here. You know, I've, uh, I, was back, I was in uh, Lawrence back in those days a couple times, and I have, I have a lot of respect for the town, and I know its legacy of, of, of being an oasis in the middle of a uh, <laughs> desert. Really, it was really um, incredible what Lawrence like, did for itself in the scene, and it was, uh, everybody talked about Lawrence. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm not saying it was a mega scene, but it was definitely a top ten underground scene in the in the in the 80s. Um, there was, um, you know, KJHK had a lot to do with that, of course. Yeah. The radio station, and there was a record store, I think, called Exile, that had a lot to do with what was going on there. Uh, before hardcore, there was uh, it wasn't quite hardcore, but before that was um, a label called Fresh Sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, guy Bill Rich, and he put out the Mortal Micronauts and the Embarrassment right. uh, on cassette, actually. It was a cassette label. And uh, I was turned on to that stuff during the hardcore years. I wouldn't say it was hardcore, but it uh, had a lot to do with that. And um, there was this guy, Tad Kepley, who I used to know, who uh, went on to become uh, a well-known anarchist, if there is such a thing. <laughs> but I have a lot of respect for the guy, and he... Uh, was my connection to um, my entrance to know stuff about Lawrence. And he was the kid putting on hardcore shows at a place called The Outhouse, which was about four miles out of town yes. and out in some cornfield. And it was some brick building, and it was where they had hardcore shows. And if you talk to any band who played toward America back in those days, they remember that stuff. And the one thing we talked about when we started this film was that we wanted to go uh, get to Lawrence and film it and go there, but you know, just things just move so fast with the film, and we we just had to finish it and never made it out there. But uh, I, um, it, it's a cool town, you know. You have the college, of course, and the whole Burroughs, William S. Burroughs history, mm-hmm. and uh, cool place. I like it. Have both of you guys been here? I, I have. I have been there. Have you been there? No, I have not. But um, I went on the road a lot with um, with Gangrene and Circle Jerks and and. You know, I would uh, hook up with those bands on the coasts. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I didn't kind of go on the road across country. I think I did it once with Gangrene. But, you know, when you crisscross, you know, everybody was talking about the outhouse. Like, these bands would show up from urban areas, and they'd, they'd show up, and it's like this this little house in a field, <laughs> literally. And it was this unforgettable. It totally marked them. You know, there was that one thing in common that was, you know, this thing they experienced. And you'd hear about it all the time. That's what I really remember. I, I was uh, really fascinated by that place, and but never made it. You know, never went to it. 
Yeah, it's um, it's now a uh, BYO strip club. So in a, in a way, it's kind of carrying on in the tradition of being oh, yeah, well, on the outskirts of on the fringe. <laughs> when we come out. <laughs> well, I, uh, for those of us who weren't actually around back in the early '80s for this scene, give us a bit of a hardcore primer. Like, how would you describe the American hardcore scene to the uninitiated? Um, you know, hardcore. Hardcore was more than music. It was a way of life. It was uh, the idea of punk rock and making it a way of life. And uh, all the terms that started with the Sex Pistols and the Clash, those bands had faded out, but they talked about doing it yourself and, and you know, doing it independently. And, and the bands just went with it. And so much of what you see today in music, from the obvious things from la- loud, fast music and aggressive lead singers and slam dancing and stage diving all the way to the indie touring networks and indie recording that, uh, indie record labels and the indie spirit we see today really can be traced back to bands like Black Flag and Minor Threat. And that's the story of our film, that this was not just some music. This was a total culture, a subculture, uh, political, not as a, as a movement political, but, but political in its being. Mm-hmm. You know, you, walk, you experienced your first hardcore show you know, in the early 80s, like 80, 81, the very, very first, you know, local, you know, in your area, hardcore shows, and you walked into those shows, and they were really stripped down, fluorescent lighting, and you either loved the music, it either hit you, and you go, I've got to be part of this, I want this to be part of my life, or you hated it, you know? It was it was really, uh, it, it really just had those two extremes. Very and, polarizing. Um, you know, if you got it, and you, you know you needed more, you, you participated. It was a small enough community that you could really just kind of step in within the band, you know, um, and, you know, you're just on the same level of, uh, with them. And the... Um, I think it's important to look at, when we talk about all this stuff, you have to remember what music was like before hardcore. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's just basically this bland thing of what became known as corporate rock, you know, sticks and journey and guys on arena stages playing 10-minute guitar solos, and you flicked your lighter and played air guitar along and wished you were, you know, you could be one of their groupies or in their scene. And, you know, this was the opposite. This was about, like, abolishing all of that. It was about creating a democratic form of rock and roll, and that's what started in the, the VFW halls and more places like the outhouses uh, kind of... It's a finger that leads you to what music is like today. And how did each of you become involved with this scene? You've each now sort of been uh, unofficially anointed authorities on this scene. How did you each get started on this? We'll, we'll start with you, Stephen. Um, you know, you had to be into punk rock, first of all, to uh, be a participant in this scene. But um, I... Uh, I loved all the early punk rock music, and I bought all the records, and then as it turned into new wave and post-punk, I, uh, I, I listened to it all, but it really wasn't me. You know, I wasn't uh, really an artist. I didn't come out of Bowie and Warhol. I, you know, I wasn't, uh, my sexual orientation wasn't in question. I wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't what punk really was about. You know, I just dug the music, and... I was uh, would go to all the shows in, in New York, and as I moved into D.C., 
and I think all of us, as far as getting into hardcore, have our, like, that moment where it kind of changes your life, where you are a different person afterwards, like Paul was saying before. And uh, I uh, saw Black Flag in 1981, Valentine's Day in 1981. How many years ago was that? <laughs> and, uh, That's very we, timely. You know, and I was a different person afterwards. It was before Henry Rollins joined the band. Henry and Ian and all those guys were in the crowd. And, uh, you know, I was just never the same person again. I was, uh, I was no, I was a co- I was, I went to college at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Probably was going to be a lawyer or some crap like that. And, uh, <laughs> after that, I was just not the same person. And, you know, Paul has a similar story being in Boston. I mean, I knew of Paul because I became, in D.C., uh, I became the kid punk rock promoter in town because somebody had to do it. And you knew the promoters in all the other towns. So I knew Alec Peters, who was the promoter in Boston. And Paul, you know, was uh, was roommates with Alec. And what I knew about Paul was that he was the first person shooting these bands. Mm. So, um, you know, we all have our stories as far as that goes. Yeah, I was. I went. I went to Boston for for college. I was there from like '78 to '82 mm-hmm. uh, or '83. I moved back to New York in late '83, and. Um, it was, uh, you know, my experiences was was going to the very, very early Gallery East shows, um, which was this kind of empty art gallery, just white concrete, white walls, concrete floor, and um, there would be shows there on Sunday afternoons, and it was all kids from the suburbs. So this wasn't like a college kid scene or anything. And uh, Alec Peters happens to come from the suburbs of Boston. Um, north of Boston, so he 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 knew about the scene. He he knew the people in it almost, um, and he became the promoter. So you know, I saw my, my my first shows. You know, like I said before, there was a sense of community of, of being part and participating. And you know, those shows only happened if the fans helped put the band helped the band put it on. You know, they just it wasn't uh, it wasn't easy finding places to play. So um, you know, I picked up a Super 8 camera. You know, within the first couple of months, and uh, I just started shooting some Super 8, namely of Gangrene, and that kind of eventually ended up in the alcohol video, and uh, you know, but that was kind of how I got involved. So, you know, neither one of us were musicians, neither, neither one of us were were in a band, but but you're both fans and boosters. We were, of the yeah, we were appended to different, to different bands at different times, I guess. You know, <laughs> working with them. And how did you two? come together to make this film American Hardcore? You know, I, I, when I wrote the book, I certainly was not thinking of making a film. It really was not even part of my vision. I don't really even think of, you know, I'm not really a film guy. You know what I'm saying? I don't really go to the movies. I don't, you know, since I've made this film, everybody thinks I, like, know a lot about film. <laughs> I still really don't. Um, but I, um, you know, around the time I was finishing the book, um, I ran into Paul, who had just moved back from Los Angeles, and uh, he had kind of had this, you know, he hit me with the idea, and, you know, Paul comes from this underground, the same scene, the same uh, ethics, you know, the same way of life, uh, the same way of uh, looking at the world, and, you know, he had been in Hollywood making great videos, you know, I mean, from his days with uh, Gang Green and Bad Brains on to, like, Alice in Chains and you know, uh, Temple of the Dog and all the early Pantera videos. And, you know, so it was really just, a, it was such an easy decision. 
Hmm. You have to go for it. And uh, just like I wrote the book without any uh, big agents or uh, money in advance, I just did it. Uh, that's what we did here. And uh, self-financed, 100% documentary film. DIY. Now it's worldwide distribution. Yeah. And uh, Paul... This film, American Hardcore, it features a lot of footage that you shot at the time. Is that right? Yeah, there's a lot of early, um, all the early gangrene stuff, a lot of the bad brain stuff, um, and uh, negative effects. Um, you know, there, there were, you know, you were shooting on anything you could grab hold of, and this was kind of before the video revolution. Um, the, the way I really got to film a lot of these early bands was was this was kind of when public access cable was, was kind of uh, booming and, and um, you know, you just had access to equipment for free. So, um, you know, I, uh, I kind of participated in this, like, public access program and, and just starting shooting bands to kind of put on the air. <laughs> and uh, But it was great because you could get really good equipment and, you know, I'd bring it to punk rock shows. <laughs> did you put it on public access afterwards yeah yeah there were some, there were some shows that uh like a couple of different people were um were doing it and uh you know they would there was a show that kind of assembled different shows from you know boston music and play them <laughs> awesome yeah so that you know that was just one facet of it but um but yeah that I, you know it really was my you know like i said you go to your first hardcore show and then so strongly affects you that you want it to be part of your life. And then that, that ethic is really what made me want to participate and pick up a camera and, and, and become a filmmaker. I mean, they were, both things almost happen at the same time. It's funny because at the time, too, on, on the movie side, it was when, like, Eraserhead was really big. Right. You know, it was like, you know, um, just such a... When I saw Eraserhead in, like, er, late 79... I was like, whoa, now you could, like, you know, it opened my mind to, like, you know, telling telling stories, like, you know, totally, with a totally different uh, mood and uh, reality from what, from what you know, life is. Yeah. And it was, um, that was happening at the same time. David Lynch, cinematic punk. Yeah. <laughs> and about this, the hardcore scene as, as a national entity. Did each region, in your guys' experience, have its own distinct individual sounding character? Or is kind of the point of the hardcore movement to belong to this, as Stephen puts it, this tribe, this larger tribe, and sort of adhere to that, the larger group and, and identify with the rules within that set? Or, or was it just a bunch of organic scenes that sort of linked together? Well, I think you make a good point there. It's, um, you know, it's definitely tribal, but there's, there's different kinds of, you know, it's kind of like there, there were Indians and then there were different tribes and they all had their different war paint and their different look. Mm-hmm. You know, it was very minor, but they were still Indians, if you know what I mean. Right, right. You know, so it was, um, you know, it was, you had to be a punk rocker first and foremost, so this was punk, mm-hmm. you know, but it was a wild form of punk, so you're already a different kind of person. Right. And it's with this jacked up music, so everyone's going to have that. Um and, you know, and everybody had seen the decline of Western civilization movies. They all knew how to dress and act, you know. So there was just kind of, you know. But within this, there were the differences. And a lot of it had to do with, uh, you know, the world is a very different place now where it's very homogenized and cities kind of lose their character. But back then, you, uh, the character of the city pretty much was in place with, uh, with its hardcore. I mean, uh, New York and San Francisco were like 
street kids and, you know, drug heads and, and uh, more proper towns like Washington and Boston had almost like this bad jock mentality. Uh, you know, so, you know, and I remember, you know, you'd, meet, you'd go and drive into Reno and all those guys would have like, uh, like uh, war paint under their eyes, literally, you know, or, or similar to how a football player has. Right. So, um, yeah, and, you know, in, in uh, Orange County, they, they wore spurs on their boots which is where all that stuff started. So, yeah, there, there were different inklings and styles, you know, and the music, the musics were different, you know, not, not like, radically different, and, there, and bands in certain cities obviously sounded alike, but there was a, a certain flavor that came with the attitude. Hmm. That's what it was. And did you notice any regional distinctions, Paul? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know... Just the Northeast was, was pretty intense because, like Stephen said, you had New York in the middle and you had Boston to the north and D.C. to the south. And, you know, those kids were assholes. <laughs> you know, and I think a lot of the Boston hardcore bands back then and how they would come to New York with this whole, like, Boston united front. And it was just, you know, the New York kids were, like, you know, running away from Puerto Ricans, chasing them all the time, you know, wanting to kill them. <laughs> So it was, it was an interesting kind of rivalry um, that you had. Uh, you know, and then you had Philly, too, which was, what was Philly like? Well, Philly was very much like New York or, or San Francisco. It was very urban, kind of. But see, the thing about Philadelphia, you know, Philadelphia was actually a town where bands would go play and, the, and scenes would show up. So in other words, Philly's a really good example of what you're talking about. Like, a, a big show would be in Philly, and you'd have the D.C. kids show up, and you'd have some New York kids show up, and maybe some Boston people would show up, and there you would see the difference. So, so like, you, it was when you would go into those kind of situations that you could, you know, it's almost like uh, rival, you know, rival gangs or sports teams, depending on how you want to look at it. <laughs> and sometimes it did come to violence from together. <laughs> well, I, I think the thing was is that um, violence was kind of part of it just because you were just so pissed and alienated about everything. Mm-hmm. But... Um, and there was uh, a lot of um, violence that comes with uh, young men. It was a very masculine scene, wasn't it? Yeah, but it, but it was very pure and very smart in its way because you know you could say oh hardcore is a bunch of thugs, but the most of the biggest guys in hardcore were Henry Rollins and Ian Mackay. Mm-hmm. Are you going to call them thugs? You know they're not. You know they're very erudite men. You know, and that's. What the, that's what was going on in hardcore. You weren't just a knucklehead. You were a knucklehead, but you were, you know, you were driven, you know, moved by what was going on, what was fucked up in the world, you know. So, uh, you know, that's what, you know, you were, it was a, uh, alienated youth that, uh, found, uh, a lot of aggression. But, you know, who's kidding who? The music was called slam dancing, you know, and that's, the, that's what the style was. I mean, you know, you, that's what you did at a show. So, you know, I, I, I find it troubling when I talk to a lot of my peers and they want to say that there was like no violence, you know, in their scene. I don't know what they're talking about. Because <laughs> sort of a whitewashing of history. There was violence just outside and inside. You know? <laughs> so, and, um, and not, not like you were going to get to a fist fight for like stepping on somebody's toes, but you absolutely, if you cross some line, like, did something wrong to someone on a dance floor or uh, had a problem with, with a guy who knew a crew, you were definitely in trouble. 
And speaking of this this hostility that seemed to be inherent in the music, do you think that it was a reflection of the political times in the early 80s? Was it consciously that, or was it just sort of a, a sublimation of what was happening in national and international politics being channeled into this music? I think it was an articulation of uh, all these, you know, this, you know, the 60s held such great promise of how the world was going to evolve, right? And it was just, uh, you know, there was the hippies and there was all this positive movement. And, uh, you know, by the end, there's like the, the, the humiliation of the time of, you know, Nixon going under and then Jimmy Carter's years and then, you know, Reagan comes into power, and we're all coming of age at that time, and it just seemed like it was all over, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were right, but we were just 20 years too early in our analysis. <laughs> you know, the, the, the world that we see, to, that we saw in the early 80s is actually the world that people are complaining about now. <laughs> you were doom prophets. Well, you know, you're, there's a certain segment of the population that is... Uh, you know, in tune with what's really going on, and a lot of them go towards the music, mm-hmm. and uh, I think that's all, that's kind of been the case. You know, I mean, I'm not a great great historian, but I know certainly back to Bob Dylan and, and to uh, the folk singers. You know, you know, uh, Woody Guthrie. Right. You know, there's and there's that kind of uh, rebel rebel political side of music that you could draw a straight line from there to. Uh, what do you think, Paul, from what you witnessed at the time? Were these bands and was this music a direct reflection of what was happening in the country? Or is this mostly just sort of a, a, a musical progression, not necessarily a, an ideological or political progression, but just sort of a musical progression from punk? Well, you know, the, the one thing is there was, this, there was this time of extreme change. You know, you were coming off of the Jimmy Carter years and he was like this failure... America Week <laughs> and all this stuff. And then Ronald Reagan comes in and kind of like a buffoon. I mean, it was, it was, you know, he was such an easy target for all the hardcore bands, <laughs> you know? So there was this, this, this kind of image of Reagan and him trying to bring in this, this kind of um, retro neo-50s vibe, you know, of, right. Amer- of a conservative America. And, you know, Hardcore kids just didn't want any... They knew exactly that they did not want any part of that, and that was what was very clear. So politically, it was really about knowing what the fuck you don't want mm-hmm. um, and and just stand by that. But it wasn't a sophisticated political movement in terms of, uh, you know, they didn't organize rallies, you know, pick up causes, uh, you know, generally speaking. So, um, but it was like this conscious... Um, kind of battle cry, sure. Do you see, we mentioned how the that rage seemed to be ahead of its time so far as the political times that we live in now, but do you see maybe a modern-day corollary happening right now, or is there anything uh, analogous to the early 80s hardcore movement that might be happening right now? Well, the era is analogous. It's just there's not the musical component. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not saying that there aren't kick-ass bands that, that we all like. That's not really what I'm talking about. It's that, is there, like, something seething down under? Is there something boiling that's so dangerous that, like, people freak out when they see it? I, I don't know if it's out there. 
Mm. I mean, you know, people would want to kill us for the haircut we had that everybody has today. Yeah. You know, well, the whole the whole idea of revolution and aggression and 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 like hardcore for that matter is it's all been co-opted, and that's really that's the other change that happened with Ronald Reagan mm. of this kind of corporate. Um, you know the corporations were were, were uh, they wanted images, you know, and um, they kind of stole the hardcore image and sold it back to kids, <laughs> you know, as a as a lifestyle. Um, and you know that's you know that's kind of what's going on. <laughs> the marketing has been so clever that the lines are blurred. Mm. There's like no there's no difference. Right. You know it's like you know be a revolutionary and buy this brand. <laughs> you know, be, be an individual and buy this brand. That, when we were growing up, it was like a herd mentality. It was like, you know, be like everybody else and buy this thing. You know, now it's like they've, they've, they've got it so down, it's like be an individual and buy this thing. And, and in reality, the revolution is really far from happening. It couldn't be <laughs> further away from happening, you know? Something, you know, there just hasn't been any, any kind of, uh, you know, you had the hippies had their thing, and there was this heart hardcore punk thing, and... Yeah, I mean, there's individual acts and bands that, that do push limits. That's not what we're talking... That's not the discussion. Yeah. But so far as a movement, I, so, so far as what you would define as a, a, a trend or a... Uh, a, a, a movement. Yeah. I mean, our, you have a great rap about how the... How it, well, yeah, you know, a movement really needs an audience. You know, it's not... You know, you could have... You know, there's always great artists. You know, there's always been great artists in all time periods, you know. Mm. But there are times when an audience becomes invested in it, you know, and makes it part of their life. And uh, it's the audience that creates the movement, you know, because uh, there's always good bands around. So, you know, I think the mood of the audience right now just isn't, you know, back then you had Ronald Reagan coming in, you had this aggressive music, and you had this this intense willing to participate audience that that just spread nationally you know with the, as the bands toured and it became this this single voice um that was completely underground you know i mean you know playing in basements and and all that mm-hmm. um and it's the audience that does that and I, I i think you really what you you know you have intense bands but you don't have the intense audience it's been it's this kind of more it's, it's much more unfocused out there do you think that maybe the internet might be playing a part in that because back in the early 80s there was no real social networking sort of scene so the only the outlet the only outlet you had back then was going to these clubs and seeing these bands and feeling like you're part of this scene but now that we have the internet you know everybody can log on and communicate with one another and just sort of use that as an outlet for their frustrations and rage oh it certainly has you know MySpace and time on the web, and it's not as personal. You know, you'd go to a show and you'd get somebody would hand you a flyer mm-hmm. that they made with their own hands. Right. You know, and you were part. You became you became a participant. You know, when you're with other people, you participate. Mm-hmm. When you're on the internet, you're really not participating the same way. <laughs> Just, it's like you know? literally, like you know the fan, you know fan leaves, You know, like guys would write every single line in it. You know, this is before typesetting or any of that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, it was just, you know, everybody was just so invested. It wasn't something you just turned off, turned off and, you know, went back to your nine to five. Like, you just couldn't go. You were, you were like, you'd cross this line. You know, you were part of an underground. And, 
I think that's what, you know, our film, you know, we're talking a lot about, you know, us and all that. I mean, this film is our tribute to the pioneers of hardcore. Right. You know what I'm saying? It's like those guys are the heroes. Right. You know, those guys blazed the trail. I mean, yeah, I did, I did a couple of van tours across the country in the early 80s. Let me tell you, they were, like, intense. <laughs> like, you know, really, really crazy and scary. And you didn't know, you know, where you would be, you know, you'd get something like But, you know, I wouldn't, you know, it, it's because of, like, Black Flag and the Bad Brains and Minor Threat uh, that uh, we're, you know, that we're talking about this. These are the, these are the guys who played the trail. All this thing about the underground touring network that I'm sure brings bands regularly to, to Lawrence uh, started with, with those band tours. And this is our homage to those guys. They're our heroes. Is your film American Hardcore, is it just a tribute, or are you trying to maybe recapture that era and uh, maybe inspire people with it? Oh, yeah. I mean... Yeah, we, we, you know, the, the point, the film was really this, this, you know, the, the vision for the film um, was to uh, go out and uh, we had these one-hour conversations with these people. Really, you know, we really let them speak their mind, and and um, I think that you know we got a certain honesty where we chose to you know let the story be told by them in the first person and, and no narration and no expert opinions and just keep it really raw and true from the people who, who created the music mm-hmm. and and were in the band and um, we really carved the story out of all those interviews so that that was really you know um, one of the, the the important decisions we made in, in, in making the film and, and likewise, as this is a tribute, Lincoln, I think it was the word that you used for it, mm-hmm. uh, it, it is also, you know, these, band, these bands were, this was more than music, you know, and, and that's, that's what it was really all about to us. You know, these bands really uh, changed the world, mm-hmm. you know, and they were, and we don't talk today about the bands that sold a zillion records back in 1982. You know, we laugh at them. <laughs> uh, the bands who we... Uh, uh, you know, we're talking about are, 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 are these bands, and they um, they deserve their due. And what do you think, in closing, uh, what do you think is the final legacy of this hardcore movement? Are there elements of it still alive and in play today, or was this just a very unique moment in time that uh, may never be recaptured again? Um, it's, it's a, you know, it, it's a totally different... Um, you know, I mean, I think I talked before about how uh, hardcore was, you know, it changed music, you know, the, the, from the, the style that music is today, uh, loud, fast, aggressive uh, guys with, you know, uh, shaved heads and tattoos and piercings and, and slam dancing and stage diving. That didn't exist before 1980. It did not in terms of rock and roll. You know, but the, the most important part is how it did change the world. These, these bands were uh, touring the world. They were pioneers, and they laid the trail for, for everything that is now called indie and alternative. The whole culture comes back to these labels like SST and Discord, you know, and uh, that's the legacy. 
It was more than music. It was a way of life. Hmm. What would you add to that, Paul? Well, you know, it's... Um, Hopefully this film encapsulates it as a, as, a, as a moment in time a little more anthropologically, too, because it was really this moment of this angry youth who was willing to create something and make it happen, you know, against all odds, all interminable odds at every corner. But you just keep on going and you're determined and you work hard. You know, all these bands really worked very, very, very hard to achieve this. And, um, you know, hopefully, you know, kids today can be inspired by that, okay. you know. And because uh, you kind of walk out of the, you know, you get a feeling a little bit in the film that, you know, where is the angry youth today like that, you know? It's not really around. So, you know, those are my last few thoughts. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's a, of, it's a testament to the power of youth. And it's a shout-out to kids that, that you can change your world. You know, look, these bands, like Paul was saying, these bands did it with nothing. There was no managers, there was no agents, there was no record company interest, there was no investors, there was no nothing. And, and it was all just, you know, these kids created their society, their own society, and, and for, for a short time it was really, really awesome. And our story is in tribute to that era of American subculture. All right, Stephen Blush, author of American Hardcore, A Tribal History, and Paul Rackman, director of the film bearing the same name. Thank you guys very much for joining us here at Lawrence.com. Hey, it was really a pleasure. Respect to Lawrence Campus. Yeah. Jeff Fortier, local Lawrence music promoter. Thank you very much for joining us here at Lawrence.com. Here, happy to be here. And we're uh, you just guys got a palace. In this I know you're in the you're in the heart the of British? the media empire. I'm ready for some fresh fruit and a glass of wine and some belly dancers. <laughs> the swag, the swag basket will be coming later. <laughs> Bring it's just the like swag the Oscars. basket on. <laughs> Uh, but we'll get a little ba- bit of background on uh, your own personal history. How does a how does a strapping young lad get involved with the Lawrence punk scene way back in the eighties? Drugs. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Well, it, it's, it's a it's a gateway. <laughs> um, I don't know. I I grew up in the uh, uh, New York hardcore scene back out east. I was uh, born in Waterbury, Connecticut, and I grew up, you know, at the ripe age of. Got going to shows when I was 13, and my dad was pretty cool. He basically let me uh, do whatever I wanted to do as long as I got Bs. And I took <laughs> full darn advantage of that. Yes. And uh, I uh, was one of a couple of people on my street that was into metal and kind of progressed into becoming a Suicidal Tendencies and Corrosion of Conformity fan. And next thing you know, um, I was 15 years old going to all these punk rock shows and I got my car when I was 16 boy you should have I which by the way I paid for by doing my paper route I had three <laughs> kind of weird and that. you were maintaining a solid B average mm, good lord and <laughs> industrious um, young lad and uh, I every Sunday I would go to uh, New York to go see the hardcore shows at CB's on Sunday afternoons uh. 
at three o'clock, and and it was great because you know you'd leave at eleven, you'd get there at one, you'd hit Ray's Pizza, you hit the little liquor store across the street, which of course served us, which was fantastic. And um, New York State of mind, you know. Back then, I mean, there wasn't a lot of place to buy records, so we'd go record shopping. We'd catch the show at three. The show'd be over at six. We'd be back in Waterbury at seven fifteen, and I'd have had a full day in New York City. Threw down, chased girls, saw. Them saw a show, bought records, ate pizza, and drank beer. It's the Horatio it was, Alger American story. It was story. a great life. And uh, I got ended up at 17. I decided that I wanted to try and go to one of the uh, more expensive culinary colleges, and I couldn't afford to do it. So I did two years in the United States Army, and uh, I enrolled in a program called the College Fund, which gave me 17 grand for um, two years. So I only had to go for two years, and I got stationed. At Fort Riley, Kansas, and you'll be happy to know that when I found out I got stationed, I cried on the spot. And uh, you'll be happy to know also that you know, thirteen weeks of basic with no day off did not hammer me. But finding out that I was going to Kansas really did, and uh, I ended up um, being in Kansas for about uh, two weeks. And I wa- ran into some guy in Manhattan, Kansas, uh, this cat John Noonan, who proceeded to tell me all about the outhouse. And so right off the bat, I started going out to the outhouse. I want to say it was January of – it was um, uh, January of 88. Mm. And uh, I started coming to shows. I think Dag Nasty was the first show that I saw at the outhouse. And the funny thing is I had seen them um, at Seabees like six months earlier on a Sunday afternoon. It was kind of – and I saw them at another club called the Anthrax in Hartford. Or, <laughs> and no, that was in uh, Norwalk. Uh, before that, and so um, I don't know. I knew a bunch of people from out east, and uh, uh, had some contacts with some bands. And there really wasn't anyone doing those kind of shows. And I became involved in the outhouse in kind of a security stagehand, helping out kind of way. And then I bought a couple shows, and you know, I, I didn't really, I wasn't a big partier, so I had, was saving all my money while I was in the army, which became a useful tool. When you want to do shows. Right. And, and so you're doing science. all this while you're stationed at Fort Riley. Yeah, and I, I actually started to, to bring a couple shows to the outhouse, and there were four of us that started to produce events at the outhouse. And um, I guess you can say that's kind of how things started to happen right. for me doing right. shows, right. so to speak. And uh, for those who weren't around at the time, describe the outhouse. Uh, how, would you, how would you best put into words, that particular and unique Lawrence institution? Well, it was a unique era, first off. Um, I mean, back then, uh, no one really, mainstream America just didn't get it. I mean, that was back in the day, I mean, in the late 80s, even in the early 80s, I mean, Lawrence always had a big punk rock scene, so there was always a base, same with Kansas City. But the interesting thing was, was that it was never really accepted by the mainstream, so you know, you could get into a fight just walking down um, Tennessee Street on a Friday night, and that was actually kind of the norm. I mean, people threw beer cans at you. You can yeah. always count on. Um, yeah, it's really, it's really a different era. So in that era, it was a lot more violent, huh. and it was a lot more aggressive. And I would say that when you made the decision to become part of the punk rock community or the hardcore community or whatever subculture yeah. that you connected to, whether it was. You know, being an oi boy or being part of, you know, one of the rude boys or it, you were a punk rocker or you were even an, 
a metalhead, you know, a Slayer fan, right. so to speak, not you know your average Metallica fan, because there is a difference between a Metallica <laughs> fan and a Slayer fan. <laughs> it's like a beautiful difference. difference it's like I the difference add. between a cultist and a hardcore suicidal Satanist. It, it wasn't. I mean, you could always count on trouble. It wasn't safe. Now, and so that is one aspect of that error, right? And um, I think that also came along with uh, you know the outhouse in that error. Um, I mean, it was really aggressive. I mean, a lot of those shows were intense. I mean, the punk rock shows were, were ne- never bad, but there was, at that era, a, a group of, of, of skinheads, that some of which were really aggressive. Right. I mean, and I was, I was down with all those people. I knew almost all of them. And, and they um, weren't necessarily like uh, neo-Nazi skinheads. No, no, there wasn't that scene, I mean, at all. I mean, they were just aggressive. And, um, uh you know that added an element, and the outhouse was uh, was aggressive as it was. I mean, whether it was the metal shows that you went to, or the punk rock shows, or the hardcore shows, um, there was a lot of different subcultures that were that the outhouse became home to. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there was an era there where the outhouse was mainly a punk rock venue, and I think over time that changed mainly because there wasn't as many punk rock bands touring, and you got to pay the bills somehow. So. Um, and I feel like Dave Buden and I brought an element of that to the outhouse where we brought hardcore bands, we brought punk rock, um, we brought metal shows, we brought death metal shows, we brought everything from, you know, Ice T to Overkill to Napalm Death to Sick of It All to, um, you know, to Dagnasty. I mean, it was just a realm to Guar. I mean, it was a realm of different stuff. Rob Zombie or White Zombie back then, yeah. Helmet. Um, Jesus Lizard. I mean, it really, we crossed a lot of boundaries as, as the outhouse closed near to its end. But that era itself, I mean, music wasn't on the radio. It wasn't on TV. It wasn't a part of mainstream culture. And if you were part of that culture, you were different. <laughs> and you can rest assured that um, people weren't as nice to you back Are, then as they are now. Now it's accepted. I think Nirvana and MTV kind of changed everything. Right. So before that, it was just – it was different. And, so and you, I don't know that it totally answered your question. Well, but no, I no. think it's relevant to the context of what the outhouse was like. And yeah, the outhouse yeah. was raw. Yeah. And there was a bit of hostility from the town folk uh, to that scene. More so in town. I think that they appreciated that we were out in a cornfield. Right. And, um, <laughs> and that we were out there away from them. Right. And um, actually that really kind of worked, to be quite honest. And the thing, one thing about the outhouse that you know, is still with me is that you, know, you didn't know if you were going to get into a fight. You didn't know if you were going to have the best time of your life. You didn't know if you were going to hook up with a girl. And you didn't know if you, what was going to happen. <laughs> Basically, you never went out there knowing – what was going to happen. I mean, it's not like going to see a show at the bottleneck or Liberty hall or the replay. Right. I mean, it was very, like I said, it was very raw and you know, we used to have cake parties out back and there was a big bonfire and it was, there was also a really big sense of community too. I mean, there were a lot of little cultures that went out there. Right. You know, you'd have the metal kids, you'd have, you know, the punk rockers, you'd have the hardcore kids, everyone, the skinheads, the oi boy, you know, every, you had all these different subcultures that all seemed somewhat to get along. And every once in a while, there'd be a little too much alcohol. <laughs> Someone would do something a little bit off keel. And, you know, and things could go to the left. <laughs> <laughs> and do you see, uh, the outhouse and the, the national bands that were, making stops there. Was the Outhouse basically the only venue for that sort of music at the time, or were there uh, other locations? I think that the Outhouse had a reputation, and people respected that, and, and, and uh, people loved the genuineness. 
And um, when you're playing club, 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 cornfield, club, 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 I mean, you almost look forward to that. And and really, there were, people were really friendly to the bands. The bands always had a good time. The parties were always great afterwards, let yeah. me tell you, uh, or the day before. And it was just <laughs> – um, it was a really – a fun era. I mean, as much as the outhouse was fun, I think the era itself was fun too. And I mean, nowadays you could never get away with stuff like that. But, you know, I mean, people also got hurt out there. I mean, you know, you could break a finger or your wrist or your ankle or your foot or your, I mean, it was very raw. I mean, there were plenty, I mean, you could pass out drunk and someone could take advantage of you. Um, and I mean, that's if you're a guy, Yeah. you know, I mean, it was, it was just that error and it was just different. It was different. And, um, you know, growing up, going to shows at Seabees, um, which was really aggressive too, um, and having that experience, uh, it didn't seem that out of – it seemed normal to me. Right. Whereas I think for a lot of people, the thought of going out to the outhouse was like, you know, it was a <laughs> – A risky proposition It really to some. was a risky proposition and um, – Of course, geographically, like you said, it's out in a cornfield and the road's not paved and from what a I lot hear, people it flooded chose, quite a bit. And, yeah, yeah. A lot of people chose not to go out there because it was a little too intense. Yeah. And that was just part of what, what was happening in that area. Of course, did that, did that help sort of – define the Lawrence scene? Did that sort of like uh, galvanize and harden the scene? Like you were physically separate from the community and uh, it, it tied into that subculture feel, just I, the, the geography and the architecture of the outhouse. I mean, sure. And I mean, a lot of, a lot of bands, um, you know, a lot of bands got their, their births playing shows at the outhouse or became part of that whole scene or even helped develop it. I mean, it was it was it was a great error. And were you were you aware at the time that you were participating in what would later become known as the American hardcore scene? Or are you can you see the forest for the trees at the time? Or is that just something that you know music journalists and historians look back on and say, oh, well, there there actually was a scene there? Or were you aware at the time that you were participating in what what became known as a movement? No, and um, I hadn't really known anything different, and I was you know. Seven, 18 at the time and I'd been going to shows for four years at that point five years and uh, it all just seemed pretty normal to me I mean I thought the, the, the straight lacers were the ones with the issues not us right. you know I thought they were the weirdos <laughs> um, so you know what I mean yeah oh yeah so that, that was my perspective so it, it was interesting having, having gone and seen the movie when it played the Tivoli and just some of the stuff that they brought up about how that it progressed, how that scene progressed, and that, that subculture grew, and it was really, it was really fascinating to 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 catch that in the movie and to kind of see it, and because I hadn't thought about it in that light, mm-hmm. really, I just thought of, about um, from the just growing up in in music and and being a part of music culture and yeah. um, being part of so many genres. I mean, I'm I love I like metal, I like punk rock, I was a fan of hardcore, I like all the indie rock stuff. Mm-hmm. I loved all the stuff that Jesus Lizard was doing back then and, and you know, that whole sub pop movement and totally totally dug everything that happened, you know, with Nirvana and you know, and continuing still. Yeah. yeah. So at some point, you know, you're not just a hardcore kid, you become a music fan and yeah. and progression. That's, and and that just seems that's that's sort of the uh the 
the problem with defining a scene is that it's it's kind of useful for historians and uh, uh, music aficionados when they're cataloging cataloging their records and stuff. But it just seems like there's a continuum of music, and it's kind of hard to uh, limit it. But it seems to be more about a specific era than, what, than, a, and, than a movement. And to add to that, what's really interesting about what you're saying, which uh, is that um, I saw the movie and was surprised by how few younger people um, weren't there and the general lack of interest um, in that. Uh, uh, I mean, and, at the time uh, or, no, just or seeing today? The movie, seeing the movie back, okay. and uh, just... Talking to a couple people and like, oh, I didn't really dig that or, uh, you know, that was that. And, you know, to me, the bad brains are forever. You know, uh, Minor Thread is forever. I we mean, both played at the outhouse. Uh, um, uh, Fugazi played the outhouse. I don't believe Minor Threat oh, did to my knowledge. Um, but Fugazi did and, and Bad Brains did. And, and um, y- you know, at some point, you know, for some of the kids, it wasn't – and for a lot of people, it's not about the music. And it's interesting because – um, over time, you look back and and as years go by, and you still associate yourself with some of the same people, or you see people from way back then, and there are just just two kinds of people: the kind of people that were music fans, and the kind of people that weren't. It's the kind of people that grew up in that era, and that's what they did when they were kids, and the and moved on, and, and the kind yeah. of people who never lost that part about themselves. And it was amazing how many of the 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 old the old school. Oh, I hate that. Like that um, Come on, it's, it's a term of was, respect. was at the movie the first night, and it really was, um, for a lot of people, it was a really sp- special time. Right. And uh, whether it was because of their youth or because that they were a music fan and they caught something. The same way I think a lot of people think about uh, how they caught Nirvana yeah. at um, – the Union Ballroom. <laughs> well, you know, just as an FYI, Nirvana played the Outhouse. That, I was going to ask. That's, that's sort of apocryphal. 24-7 spies uh. at the Outhouse. And I think that was one of the things I, you know, just to talk about the Outhouse again for a quick second, that I really, really now can look back on with a lot of, like, happiness. <laughs> I is was that, there. <laughs> is that, no, not so much that I was there, but that it went from being so punk rock to being everything. Right. And in its last days, it had, it had... It, it it did what it was it, – it lived and died. Right. And it was organic. Right. And uh, um, the fact that, you know, Nirvana and 24-7 Spies and Guar and the Bad Brains and Fugazi and Napalm Death could all play that building. And it, it became more than a place for punk rock or hardcore. It just became a place for underground music. And I think once Nirvana blew up and MTV picked up on it and mainstream America accepted uh, – uh, left of center music culture right, right. And, and and embraced it. Yeah. Um, I think that it uh, there really wasn't a need at that point. It kind of killed the, it. It didn't because because it seems like the whole justification for that sort of scene, not justification, but the rationale for that sort of scene is that we are forgive the term it, alternative it to what's going on in the mainstream. A reaction um, to what it was wasn't going underground on. anymore, yeah. and unfortunately, you know, we had the big floods. Yeah. That happened that kind of closed the road down so you couldn't get out there unless you had trucks busing people and we that got old. <laughs> and I'll tell you, it, it was very nice to be able to do a show at the Bottleneck or at Liberty Hall and have a Guinness and watch <laughs> the show. And, and not able, freeze your balls off. And not work outside yeah. and freeze and have 50 million people trying to steal or sneak in yeah. and and not be able to keep a handle on people fighting. And, and um, I think once – 
I mean, it was it was as DIY as you could get. And yeah. That was the outhouse. So it was it was just it had its moment, and it right. and things changed, and uh, it was a really really great era. And we've talked a little bit about the the national scene. How how do you think Lawrence figured into the national punk scene back in the eighties? Well, I mean, I think there was a couple different um, eras. I mean, the era of the Micronauts mm. um, really kind of took it to the map. I mean, between that era of the Micronauts and the Embarrassment and, and, and you know... The, Which are all area And the bands. Red Dog Inn and the beginning of the Outhouse. That was the beginnings. That was the beginning of that era. And KJHK played a huge role in that. And between... You know, that was the first real imprint, so to speak. But the next era was like, it was the Outhouse. It was... Um, uh, really, the, the birth of Love Garden Records, or Love Garden over here, and yeah. and and recycled sounds in Kansas City, and the continuance of KJHK, and really um, just the level of national and volume of touring acts, mm-hmm. and um, the the combination of all those different subcultures. I think that was the second wave of stuff. Um, I think the first wave really had the the local band element with the right. embarrassment and the micronauts, and I think the second wave really was about the record stores and the camaraderie and the so outhouse sort itself. of self promoting the scene. Right, the outhouse was its was really kind of a core core part of it. Whereas the first wave, I don't I don't think that it was. I think it was the the local bands and the the. And then the combination of the two, I think at that era, though, the second wave with the outhouse, I think some of the older community were like, eh, you know, they felt the younger people were maybe a little too aggressive and almost at times kind of disrespectful and right. aggressive. And, and, and um, you know, that's not to say some of the, at that point, some of the people who had hung out there four or five years didn't go out there, but they chose when they go out there. I mean, do you think, you know, I mean, as someone who likes the mortal mic- micronauts going to really want to go out and see Napalm Death and Sick of It All? The answer to that is no. <laughs> Are they going to go out there and see the Bad Brains? Yes. Are they going to go out there and see um, Dag Nasty? Yeah. Are they going to go out there and see Guar? Maybe. <laughs> Are they going out there to see Rob Zombie? No. So at that point, it was just different. Was it sort of fracturing into different sort of subgenres? Yeah, and, and the cliques? punk rock community really had an issue with that. Yeah. Um, they felt that we were selling out, and in essence, I think what we were doing was we were being. Yeah, we were being. It's that simple. I mean, we weren't. We were trying to keep the place open, and for me, um, and I think for Dave, and and for a couple of the other people involved. I mean, I didn't really feel like there was that much difference between the Bad Brains and Dag Nasty and. Or Slayer, or Twenty Four Seven Spies. To me, it was all Just music. Music, yeah. and but that was—I had a different perspective, yeah. and uh, that is—I don't know—it's different. Is that kind it wasn't of, appreciated yeah. certainly back then? Yeah, and is that Some kind of did. was that kind of the undoing of that sort of underground music scene? Is that that sort of tribalism? One, it, it, it gets a bit too fierce in trying to protect its integrity to the point where it, it almost uh, hampers the music from growing. Well, and I think everyone have a different definition of what growth is. Growing older, the music progressing, the band trying to make money and make a living, families and kids. I mean, there are just so many things that become part of that one statement that depending on which member of the band or which era you were part of or how old you were or whether you 
you know, were really part of that scene until you were 30 mm-hmm. versus being a part of that scene until you were 20. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's really – and it's interesting to have been involved with it so long and seen how having kids and how growing older and, and how um, other priorities take place in your life and you move on and you don't have that Tuesday night to go out and be a part of what that was, right. so to speak. Especially <laughs> when you – you know, and a big part of it, you did it. You did it when you were young, and now you're not young. You have kids. You have a wife. You have a job. You know, you'll catch a show when it makes sense for you and when your heart's in it. Right. And I think that that's okay. I think that's just part of it. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess on that topic of of growth, of of, uh, music scene evolving, where do you see Lawrence right now? How how would you – how would you rate, not rate, but how would you describe the music scene as it stands now, especially in contrast with how it was back in the 80s? I think it's a different era. First of all, I mean, back in that era, you had to, like, order records sometimes through the mail. I mean, I mean, I had a really hard time getting records when I was out here until Love Garden opened. Mm. I mean, and, and uh, uh, everything wasn't so attainable. And I think you've got an era here where the kids have everything – at their fingers. Um, music isn't as spiritual to them as I think it was to the people from um, that era, and particularly the community and music community that I was a part of. So you think back then it was music was uh, more hard to come by, rarer, more precious almost, like you had to fight for it you to were, get a hold of it? You were part of – I mean, I always felt like I was part of it. Mm-hmm. And I think today it's um, it's kind of like eating a meal or um, going to see a movie. Um, I mean, music is easily accessible. Um, it's it's very commercial, mm-hmm. um, and it's easily accessible. You can you, you're just it's right there in your fingertips, and you don't have to fight for it. And I think that um, people's perspective of music. I mean, are there any heroes right now? You know, back then, I mean, I mean, to me, Ian MacKay was and Henry Rollins and Bad Brains, and man, they were like my heroes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it was almost like a, a revolution, <laughs> almost for me. Yeah, um, that's not like the it doesn't mean it was for everyone. And so today, I just think that that's different, and things have progressed. And you know, and look at that generation of musicians. I mean, a lot of them have made careers out of it, and that's not a bad thing. And I think mm. the kids today are a lot smarter and wiser than we were and I think their perspective of it is different and to a certain extent warranted and that's not to say that there's not a lot of music fans but it is to say that their perspective is different Um, I can tell you that there's a lot more shows and a lot bigger shows and a lot more variety now than there ever has been Mm -hmm. and I think the kids have a lot of choices as far as of what I think about Lawrence in reference to that I think Lawrence has become more of a sports town and I think that because everything is so accessible, it's not as precious. And um, at this point, I think that most of the people in Lawrence have gotten to see anyone they've ever wanted to see. And I think that's great. Yeah. And I'm certainly not mad about it. As a matter of fact, I'm proud of it. And I'm, it's exciting. And I think... As a music promoter, it's, it's something thing, you should be proud of. It's a good thing for everybody. I mean, <clears> whether you want to see that cool little indie show that, you know, Downplay brought... Or excuse, cool little indie hip-hop show that... that Edwin and the guys from Neon Bra, or you, there's that, you know, that um, Bell and Sebastian show that Jackie's bringing to Liberty that, mm-hmm. oh my God, they're really going to play there. <laughs> I mean, there's just a lot. And um, I think that's a good thing. But I do think that 
it's it, music and culture have gotten so uh, commercialized. You know, that's one big thing. The other is that I think Lawrence has really gravitated towards being more of a mainstream, sports-orientated town. And I think that um, the music and the arts are unfortunately um, becoming less important to the community, less appreciated. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that that is obvious by watching and seeing what's happening within not only the art community, um, but within the music community in, in Lawrence. Um, and look at, look at the city the city's perspective. I mean, they think that the bar should have permits, mm-hmm. you know, if they want to be an entertainment venue. I mean, you know, I mean, what is that? I mean, obviously it's to keep, you know, the black community from coming to Lawrence. I mean, that's obvious. No one wants to say it. I really wish your paper would discuss uh, uh, that a little bit. Well, you, um, you have the platform not my, now. <laughs> um, sure, I'm happy to discuss that. I, I, I mean, that's... Obviously, hip-hop doesn't get the most support um, anywhere, and it's disappointing that a local show that draws 60 people that someone would get shot and unfortunately would die outside the Granada 30 minutes after the Granada closes their doors. Mm. And um, it's unfortunate that it's pointed at the Granada and the venue and that these people actually sued the Granada. I mean, at some point, you got to take responsibility for stuff and, you know... I don't think that that is fair is, or appropriate. And personally, I'm a big fan of the guy from Last Call. I mean, I think that <laughs> um, uh, I think that if Lawrence wants to be this open arms community, I don't think it should have a problem with uh, Topeka and Kansas City natives coming and being a part of the community. And obviously, a big part of it is that they feel safe here. Right. I mean, and you know, no one talks about that, but there's truth to that. Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, it says a lot about what's happening in black culture, that people need to feel a need to have to protect themselves, you know? And unfortunately, um, uh, that's a tough thing for the police and for the community to embrace and accept. So do you think hip-hop's sort of become the equivalent of what the punk movement was back in the 80s and that has been feared and no, reviled by I the mainstream? That, I think that hip-hop has been... Um, commercialized more so than anything. And I think, if anything, there are similarities between the way black people feel about hip-hop and white people absorbing, emulating, and taking their culture over. Mm. I think it's very comparable to the punk rock community feeling that white mainstream America, you know, stole their culture too. If anything... I think, of course, it could be argued that we stole their uh, rock and roll, too. <laughs> um, to a certain extent, there's a lot of truth to that, especially if you, you know, look at the history of you know, that Cleveland radio station and that mm. – I forget the cat's name. Uh, King, I think was his name. I'm embarrassed. The, I can't the DJ. remember. You're a right. music guy. You should know I know. This. I know. And I went and I read the story and it, it's a great – it's great. Um, but I think there's similarities. It's amazing to me the similarities between punk rock and hip-hop. Yeah. And even more so how they both feel about the commercialization yeah. of their culture by white America. Uh-huh. Because if any person you meet, if you, you – punk rock guy, are they really – are they a punk rock guy or are they part of white mainstream America? I'm sure they'll have a – Comment for you. A, a heated <laughs> debate would ensue. I don't know if it'll be heated. It'll be blunt. Yeah. Blunt as in fists. So I don't know. That's my take on really where things are. It's disappointing for me to see Lawrence music culture in its in its space. Um, another thing is is that 
you know, for whatever reason, uh, there's just too many options. Right. I think when you have... It dilutes everything? Well, when you have Fatso's, the jackpot, the replay, the tap room, the Granada, the bottleneck, <laughs> um, the Gaslight, and a bunch of other places right. all doing live music, it's almost more than the, than the town can support, especially during this climate. Right. Especially during this climate where everything's commercialized and mainstream sports culture is bigger. Right. And always has been and always will. Hmm. So, you see, but has there ever been really any satisfaction ever from people in the music scene with where the music scene is in Lawrence? Because it seems like back in the day, back in the 80s with the outhouse, it seems like there would also be some, there are always purists who are saying that, oh, it's becoming too commercialized and commercialized. Is, it, is that just part of the, of the nature of the music scene is that, there's never that sort of ideal that you reach at the time. I think it's part of of every subculture yeah. or subculture that bases its way not only around music but around politics or art yeah. or anything. I think whenever you have a knit group of co- community that is connected through the arts in, a, in every form, once that sense of um, success or success of popularity financially or appreciative happens, I think that the that just starts to happen. <laughs> and and new cultures and new movements and new foundations are built because of that. So it's all part of it. Right. And you were talking about uh, the, the lack of heroes anymore and, and sort of the almost spiritual element to it but what about the the political element it it, a lot of people have looked at the 80s hardcore scene as sort of being a reaction to reagan era politics and in the middle of the cold war maybe not like a conscious you know reaction to a specific policy but just the political climate and environment how how much do you think that had an effect back in the 80s and and do you see anything similar happening happening now well it was different like i said back then it was different i mean when you had a mohawk or you had a bald head or you were different whether you were a morrissey or whether you were a smiths fan and you liked the cure or whether you were a slayer fan or whether you were a fan of the bad brains and uh agnostic front or any of those those different genres of, of, of culture, you, you had a connection. You were different. And um, I think the politics were... Everyone felt that, regardless of the genres that you were in. And I think that, um, like I said, it wasn't safe back then, regardless of what subculture you were part of, because you were, you were outside the norm of mainstream society. And I think that that's different today. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the political aspects, well, you had a reason to be political. You were the enemy. Yeah. I think in so far today, the politics are a little bit different, obviously, with the anti-war movement and with the continuance of, of uh, loss of our rights and uh, a more conservative environment and a more religious environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and even one that's – I mean, our society is getting more tolerant – and a lot of people don't want to accept that, but I, I think there's truth to that. I think it's becoming a more tolerant society. I think the avenues have changed. And, um, I mean, right now, obviously, the Dixie Chicks just won a big award. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of politics there. Mm-hmm. Some would say that that was pretty punk rock for <laughs> them to do. Um, I think the politics are still a big part of it, but I think that um, 
the liberal perspective isn't always a tag that people want, but I think that as far as the anti-war movement goes and the pol- politics behind that, I think that there's something to be said there. It does influence, you think, the music I think that's happening now? I think it's influencing music as a whole, yeah. not just um, underground music. And at this point, what is really underground? Right. I mean, 96.5 The Buzz is all over every new act that comes up and, and is perpetuating and um, opening the door for a lot of different acts. And uh, do you dislike the commercialization via radio or is really the enemy of the internet which allows you to get anything that you want whenever you want it mm. and where does MySpace fit into this you know MySpace has become a new home of music and it's unique mm-hmm. and it's it's different does that sort of does the internet and uh, social networking sites like MySpace does that sort of break down the barriers that used to exist and it makes uh, or create pr- new ones it's yeah. too early to tell I mean it's in it's early just such a unique beast. Um, I mean, and the fusion of technology with culture is fascinating to me. And it's even going to change more so um, uh, as uh, time goes on and and as we become more an, an advanced society and we become more in tune with people around the world. I mean, the barriers are being broken down and, uh, you know, you can battle a kid from Japan on your little handheld f- video game. Right. You know, I mean, there are no rules. <laughs> and uh, I don't think there's going to be for a long time coming. And I think where we're going technologically is is really astounding. And if you pay attention and if you're keen to what's going to happen over the next 25 or 30 years with technology and the rate and growth of what that is. I mean, do you really think they'll be printing papers in five years? (laughs) Maybe as a throwback, as as a niche market. And will you really need to look at a device to read one? Mm -hmm. Think about that. (laughs) I'm not even going to, you know. Yeah, we're getting into David Cronenberg territory. What does all that mean? And are you going to define yourself by by the kind of music you listen to? Hmm. And And what you believe, unless they're, even if they're connected. Boy, you know, it, it, these are these are unique, interesting questions. Yeah, and I, that actually is a pretty good segue for sort of the, the closing question: is what do you think the legacy of the hardcore punk music scene is from the '80s, and and how do you see that legacy playing out today? Boy, that's a deep big question. big question. I know, I but need to smoke a bowl. <laughs> wow, um, gee. The legacy of that era was that um, anything can happen and that um, that uh, I don't think anyone thought back then that 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 all of those bands could still have careers 20 plus years later mm-hmm. and that the music would still mean something not only to the people who liked it back then but to some of the newer generation who search for music and I think it was a really great era it was raw it was it was special it was uh, it was fun (laughs) it was a fun time and um, it was its own thing and I think I think the interesting thing is is that era and that movement is so comparable to the hippie movement Mm. and that era where um, us and them you know us and them 
and uh, it's our time now, and uh, there was just no commercialization to any of those bands and that movement, and then once it blossomed and came commercial, it kind of grew away, except for mm. the people who were able to make careers out of it and last through it. I think in the same kind of token, we're kind of reciprocal of that mm-hmm. 60s era, I think, that we are. I mean, I mean, some of those bands, it's Rollins, Ian Mackay, the Bad Brains, and those people are still here. They're still playing music. They're still a part of being who they are and what they're doing, and um, we still get to be a part of that. It was, I think it's something that uh, will be seen in a different form uh, than maybe the way that we perceive it now, mm-hmm. years to come. And we have yet to determine what that will be, or, or do not know yet what shape that will take. I think the movie really caught a lot, a big taste of it. Mm-hmm. And um, I think down the road, certainly, uh, as new bands appear, people will refine those bands in a different way. Nice. Well, I think that very nicely that sews it up. Question. No, it was it was perfect. I know. On the button. I give it a C minus. <laughs> no, no, you're C-. solid. B. You're a B student. I think that was at least passing. B. Mm. I go B. I'll right. take it. Where's Jackie Becker when you need her? <laughs> I needed some of her. Mm. <laughs> no, there is enough. Oomph, trust me. All right. Well, Jeff Fortier, thank you very much for joining us Thanks here at Lance.com. Fun. I would like to once again thank our guests, Stephen Blush, author of American Hardcore, Paul Rackman, director of American Hardcore, and Jeff Fortier, Lawrence Music Promoter. We urge everyone to go see American Hardcore at Liberty Hall's free screening on February 24th, and we also urge you to email us at poundingthepundit at yahoo.com, leave comments at lawrence.com, and join the movement at www.myspace.com backslash punditocracy. This has been Gavin, and I hope this installment of Punditocracy has been as much of a delightful gob in the mouth and punch in the face for you as it has been for me. Brr, brr, brr.